0: Good morning, friends. It's so good to be with you on the Lord's Day. If you have your copy of God's Word, and I hope that you do, please take it and turn with me to the Gospel according to John, where we're going to be continuing in our teaching on Jesus as the bread of life. So John chapter 6 this morning, and today we're going to be in verses 35 to 48. So John chapter 6. The Bread of Life Discourse, verses 35 to 48. And if you would please follow along with me as we read from God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, beginning in verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Let's pray together now. Heavenly Father, we do pray for illumination this morning. We ask for the Holy Spirit's work among us, that we would see what is true in the scriptures concerning Jesus Christ and his gospel, that we would believe that truth and that we would live On that truth father. In faith and obedience. We pray father. That we would be a church today. That is shaped by the bible. In what we love. What we desire. What we think. What we believe. What we do. We pray father. That we would be shaped by the scriptures. We pray that we would not merely know the scriptures God. But that we would know them and do them by faith. I pray God that you would please keep me from error. Please grant your people discernment today that we would hold fast to the truth and, though be, and, and so be saved on the last day through Christ. And we pray all of this in his name, confident that you hear us. Amen. In 1941, C.S. Lewis delivered a message entitled, The Weight of Glory. The point of Lewis's message was to impress upon Christians the magnitude of the promise that we will share in the glory of God with Jesus Christ. If Christians truly understood the glory that is promised to them, then they would live with the weight of that promise, pressing them deeper into love. Both love for God and love for others. The message is a masterpiece of Christian reasoning and I would encourage you to read it. You can find it online for free. While the entire address is powerful, there's one illustration near the beginning of the message that is most well known. Lewis asks, why don't Christians live for the weight of glory that is promised to them? Why don't we live for that glory? Because, Lewis answers, our desires are too weak. He goes on to say, and I'm going to quote him here, we are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea we are far too easily pleased. Friends, that is penetrating insight into human nature. God, by His grace, holds out infinite satisfaction to us. Infinite satisfaction. Eternal communion with God. And yet, because of the blinding effects of sin, we are like those ignorant children playing in the mud. We are convinced that the sewer is better than the sea. We're content with what can never satisfy us because we are far too easily pleased. And and so what what is the solution? What is the solution to this foolish ignorance? This is no small question. What is the remedy for humanity's preference for things that do not satisfy? Even more pressing, is there a remedy Is there a remedy to our preference for things that don't satisfy? If Lewis is correct that by nature we are content with the slum, then what hope is there that anyone will take God up on his offer of a holiday at the sea? Or to put it in the Bible's language, if humanity by nature is blinded by sin, how will the light of the gospel ever be received? That question brings us to our passage today in John chapter 6. As we learned last week, this section of John is called the bread of life discourse. Jesus proclaims himself to be the bread of life that came down from heaven. And unlike the manna in the wilderness, those who receive the bread of life will never be hungry again. Friends, that is an unthinkable promise. Talk about the weight of glory. This is it. Bread that satisfies far more than physical hunger, bread that brings eternal life. And yet, the people in John 6 do not receive the bread of life. Again, remember how Justin ended the passage last week with verse 34. What did the people say after Jesus taught them? What did they say? Verse 34 Sir, give us this bread always they wanted more physical bread you can keep all the bread from heaven stuff jesus just give us something to eat it's like a group of ignorant children who turn down a holiday at the sea because they're content with the mud pies of the slum the crowd in jesus's day is far too easily pleased So, in response, Jesus does something very unexpected. Jesus is always doing unexpected things. That's why it's a joy to read the Gospels. Jesus does something very unexpected. He answers their rejection, not with further pleading, but with the priority of grace. He answers their question, not by pleading with them more, but with the priority of grace. That is Jesus' solution to humanity's preference for things that don't satisfy. Jesus declares clearly and directly and powerfully that only grace can call us from the muddy slum and bring us to God's holiday at the sea. Only grace can open blind eyes to see the weight of glory so that we receive by faith all that God is in Jesus Christ. This is how the bread of life satisfies the human soul. By grace, God draws to Christ those who would never leave their mud pies. And in faithfulness, Christ saves all those who come to him. In that sense, this passage, the bread of life discourse, is certainly telling us something about Jesus, who he is. And what he came to do. But at another level. At a deeper level. The bread of life discourse. Is showing us how God's grace triumphs over humanity's unbelief. Certainly teaching us something about Jesus. But also showing us something about the triumph of grace. Even over unbelief. It is probably not an exaggeration to say. That this passage in John 6 is among the clearest passages in all of the New Testament on the power and the magnitude and the priority of God's grace in Jesus Christ. You would be hard-pressed to find a clearer passage. If C.S. Lewis is right that we prefer the slum to the sea, then John 6 tells us that God does the unthinkable. He comes to the muddy slum... At his own initiative. And through the gospel. God brings us himself. To the sea of his salvation. Where we receive Christ. Who alone can satisfy. With that being said. Here is how we are going to proceed this morning. I want us to look at three realities. That explain how. God brings sinners. To feast on the bread of life. Next week, we're going to think about what it means to receive Jesus as the bread of life. But this week, we want to think first about how God brings people to that feast. Next week, we feast. This week, how do we get there? There's three realities at work. The first has to do with the faithfulness of the Son of God. The second has to do with the purpose of God the Father. And the third is the application, the call to faith. So that's where we're going in this very important passage on how God's grace triumphs over unbelief. Let's begin then in verses 35 to 40 with the saving faithfulness of the bread of life. That's point number one. The saving faithfulness of the bread of life. In verse 35... Jesus sweeps away any misconception and proclaims his identity. I am the bread of life, Jesus says. The clarity in verse 35 is the key. There is no doubt in Jesus' assertion. There's no misconceptions. There's no misconstruals. He is the bread of life. Israel's manna in the wilderness was a shadow, a picture of something greater. And in verse 35, Jesus says, I am that something greater. I am the bread of life. He is. The provision that has come down from heaven to give life to the people of God. He's unmistakably clear. Following that clear declaration, Jesus goes on to describe the faithfulness of his provision. That's a good way to think of this opening paragraph. Verses 35-40 to emphasize the faithfulness of Jesus. Notice all the ways that Jesus, the bread of life, is faithful. To begin with, he is faithful to satisfy. Look again at verse 35 and catch what Jesus says about his work. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. We're going to consider what it means to come to Jesus later in the sermon, but for now, we ought to note the satisfaction that Jesus promises. His satisfaction is complete. And unending. No matter how good the physical bread, you're going to be hungry again. No matter how cool the drink of physical water, you're going to be thirsty again. Not so with the bread of life, Jesus tells us. Those who come to Jesus find unending satisfaction, eternal satisfaction. Those images of eating and drinking are not incidental, they're significant. You may remember the opening to Isaiah 55. Where the Lord God uses this same imagery of eating and drinking. Speaking through the prophet. God says to his people. Come. Everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. And he who has no money. Come and buy and eat. Eating and drinking. Even back in the Old Testament. This is how God spoke of his salvation in the life of his people, God spoke of hunger and thirst being satisfied in himself. So, here in verse 35, when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, he's not simply being creative, he's telling us that the promise of God, stretching all the way back to the Old Testament, is now coming to pass in him. He is the provision that satisfies, He is the bread. ...that dispels hunger. He is the drink that quenches thirst. He is the glory that we were made to see. He satisfies. Blaise Pascal once said... ...all men everywhere seek happiness. And that's true. All men everywhere seek happiness. We live for what we think will give us satisfaction. We live for glory on some sense... And Jesus is saying in verse 35, He is that glory. He is that satisfaction of the human soul as the bread of life. He is faithful to satisfy. Along with that, Jesus is also faithful to fulfill. In verse 36, a question arises that demands an answer. This is important for understanding how we will interpret the rest of the passage Notice in verse 36 that Jesus acknowledges the crowd's unbelief. Verse 36. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. That is an indictment on the crowd. When Jesus multiplied the loaves and the fish, the crowd didn't say, Oh Jesus, give us more of the truth. (laughs) They said, give us more bread, we're hungry. They see, but they don't see. In other words, they have physical eyes, but not spiritual sight. They get so caught up in the earthly provision that they miss the heavenly glory. But do you see the problem this creates? Again, this is important, so I want you to track with me. The problem is the connection between verse 35 and verse 36. If Jesus is the bread of life, verse 35 then why doesn't the crowd receive him, verse 36? To put it differently, doesn't the crowd's refusal to come to Jesus cast doubts on his claims? Imagine if I opened a pizza shop and I put on my sign outside, world's best pizza. And then every time you drove by my pizza shop, there was nobody there. Wouldn't you think, that's not the world's best pizza. Nobody wants to eat it. When Jesus says, I am the bread of life, and the crowd says, yeah, about that, could we have some more bread? Doesn't that cast doubt on Jesus' claims? Do you see the problem? Verse 37, Jesus gives us the answer. Listen again. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So, does the crowd's unbelief cast doubt on Jesus' claims? No, Jesus says. Why not? Because the Father's plan cannot be stopped. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, Jesus says. That's the point of verse 37. Despite human rejection of Christ, all whom the Father gives to the Son will come to Him, and the Son will never cast them out. The idea here is more than welcoming. To never cast out carries the sense of protection, even preservation. The father gives and the son keeps. The father calls and the son preserves. You see, no amount of rejection, no amount of denial, no amount of unbelief can keep the son from being faithful to his father. In fact, notice Jesus' very clear commitment to doing the Father's will. Verse 38. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So follow Jesus' reasoning at this point. Why does Christ never cast his people out? Because those people were given to him by his Father, and his mission is to do the Father's will. The salvation of God's people is purposed by God the Father and that salvation is guaranteed by the faithfulness of God the Son. That's why Jesus never casts you out if you're a Christian because he loves his Father and he's come to do his Father's will. So as countercultural as it sounds to our ears and this is countercultural but just wait there's more countercultural to come. As countercultural as it sounds to us, the crowd's unbelief in verse 36 does not cast doubt on Jesus' claims. Why not? Because Jesus' mission, Jesus' mission, the hope of that mission, does not rest on humanity's response. It rests on the will of God, the very will that Jesus has come down to fulfill. It all comes together in verses 39 and 40. Jesus is faithful to satisfy. He's faithful to fulfill. And therefore he is faithful to save. He mentioned the Father's will in verse 38. And now Jesus clearly defines that will in terms of salvation. Look at verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me. That I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. But raise it up on the last day. You can hear the note of preservation in verse 39, can't you? As the bread of life, Jesus will lose nothing of what the Father gives. Christ keeps His people. He protects them. He preserves them. And He does so until the final day. Friends, that is the faithfulness of the Son of God. He keeps God's people until the very end until believers are raised up at the resurrection of the dead and enter into eternal life. Christ keeps His people. Indeed, that's the emphasis in verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Jesus is very clear at this point that salvation is received by faith alone. To look on the Son is to believe in Him. But the real, the real heart of verse 40 is the certainty of final salvation. Do you hear that note of certainty? The Son will raise every believer on the last day. Certainly, surely, absolutely, no fail, no doubt. He will bring every Christian into eternal life. Let that be an encouragement to you, friends. The crowd may reject Jesus, like in verse 36. The world may mock those who believe in Christ. But in the end, on the last day, faith in Christ is vindicated with eternal life. Faith in Christ is never foolish or futile because, in faithfulness to his Father, Christ will raise every believer to final salvation. It's never foolish. To bank your life on Christ. Regardless of what the world may say. Faithful to satisfy. Faithful to fulfill. And therefore faithful to save. Brothers and sisters. This is the faithfulness of the bread of life. His provision never leaves us hungry. Listen. We need to appreciate. We need to appreciate the assurance of salvation. That is present in Jesus' faithfulness. Our assurance of salvation does not rest on the strength of our faith. It's never good to have faith in your faith. Our assurance of salvation does not rest on the strength of our faith. But on the faithfulness of the Son of God. Again, I'll say it it once more. In this paragraph, don't miss the certainty of how Jesus talks. He will never cast out God's people. His people will never thirst. He will, without a doubt, raise His people at the resurrection. Our assurance of salvation rests on that certain language. It rests on the saving faithfulness of the Son. And listen, that faithfulness can never be broken. Do some Trinitarian reasoning in your own mind. This is why it matters that Christians know and understand the doctrine of the Trinity. The Son's faithfulness can never be broken. In order for your salvation to fall short, the Son of God would have to fail in His relationship to His Father. And He would never do such a thing. The Son is perfect in power, so He is able to fulfill the Father's plan. The Son is perfect in faithfulness, so He is eternally willing to keep all whom the Father gives to Him. Don't trust in the strength of your faith. Trust in the faithfulness of the One who is strong enough to keep you to the very end. Listen, if your faith is weak today, two things that I want you to know. One, welcome. Welcome. This is where we want you to be. And two, don't make the mistake of resting your assurance on the strength of your own believing. That's a shaky place to stand. Listen to and learn from Jesus in John 6. The assurance of salvation rests on the faithfulness of the bread of life. And if you doubt him, then try him. Those who come to me will never hunger, Jesus says. Trust him. Trust Him. Since He is faithful to do all His Father's will, we are saved to the uttermost. From the faithfulness of the Son, we move immediately to the purpose of God the Father. The second reality in our text is verses 41 to 46. The sovereign purpose of God the Father. The sovereign purpose of God the Father. This this section begins in a sadly familiar way. The crowd rejects Jesus. Notice verse 41 into verse 42. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I came down from heaven? So despite seeing Jesus' signs, the crowd does not believe. That's important. They saw the signs, they don't believe. Humanly speaking, their familiarity with Jesus is the reason for their blindness. They know Jesus' family, they know where he grew up. So how in the world can he say that he came down from heaven? It's preposterous in their minds. This also creates the same dynamic that we saw last week. Their preference for physical things keeps them from seeing the spiritual glory. They see what they don't see. The crowd rejects Jesus. And this puts them in a dangerous position. Notice Jesus' rebuke, verse 43. Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. The shortness of Jesus' sentence reveals his intent. He's warning the crowd, Don't grumble. He's warning them that they're headed for judgment. It's a a sharp rebuke. Why is it so sharp? Well, notice that word in verse 43, grumble. Grumble. Do you know who else grumbled against God's provision in the Bible? The Israelites in the wilderness. Exodus 16, verse 8. The Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him. Do you remember what happened to that wilderness generation of Israelites? They received the judgment of God. They all died in the wilderness. So when Jesus says, don't grumble, he's warning the crowd. He's warning them. Don't follow in the example Of unfaithful Israel. That road leads to death. That road leads to judgment. Don't grumble. Jesus says. And then immediately following that warning. Jesus turns to the purpose of God. It's the same dynamic that we saw just a minute ago in verses 36 and 37. Doesn't the crowd's grumbling indicate that God's plan is failing? Doesn't the crowd's grumbling indicate that this whole mission of redeeming the people of God is going to come up short? Because these people don't want Jesus. They just grumble. Isn't God's plan failing? Hardly, Jesus says. Notice the clear, powerful, direct statement of God's sovereign purpose. Verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Again, this is probably the clearest New Testament statement on the sovereignty of God in saving his people. When it comes to salvation, God's grace takes priority. No sinner ever makes the first move towards God. God moves towards us. God calls sinners to Christ. And God's call is always effective. God's call always accomplishes the purpose with which he sends it out. It's only through God's effectual calling that anyone comes to Jesus. We need to be clear on this. We need to be as clear as possible. In God's work of salvation, the human will is not primary. God's will and call is primary and effective. By nature, the human heart is unable to come to Christ on its own. And you think, surely not. Look at verse 44. The verb in verse 44 is simply the common New Testament verb for ability. So the sense is quite blunt, verse 44 no one is able to come to Christ unless the Father draws him. In God's work of salvation, the human will is not primary, God's will is primary, God's call is primary and effective. Of course, many people object to the sovereignty of God's grace. But the very setting of the scene explains why God's grace must be primary. Think about the crowd that is rejecting Jesus at this moment. What have they witnessed? Jesus multiplying loaves and fish to feed probably a crowd of 20,000 people. A miracle that is so clear with Old Testament echoes that they try to make him the king. What have they heard? Jesus proclaimed himself as the fulfillment of God's word. And yet what have they concluded? That they only want more bread. The issue, you see, is not a lack of evidence. The issue is not a dearth of signs that Jesus just hasn't done enough to show them the truth. The issue is not evidence or signs. The issue is the natural state of the human heart. Left to ourselves, we're content with the mud pies in the slum. You can keep the sea, God, I'll take the mud. You can keep the bread of heaven, Jesus, just give me more bread to eat. On our own, we are so dead in sin that even when the Son of God comes down in human flesh and breaks five loaves to feed nearly 20,000 people, we grumble. We grumble that we didn't get enough. Friends, the entire flow of John 6, indeed the entire thrust of John's gospel, necessitates verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And verse 44 has to be read in connection with verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And so, before we object to this biblical teaching, we ought to recognize how lost we would be without God's sovereign grace. Verse 37 and verse 44 are in the Bible, not to generate arguments, but to foster worship. Worship. When we say that apart from God's call God's sovereign call, no one would be saved. We are fundamentally declaring our confidence that God's grace is mightier than human sin. Even our sin that would have kept us in the same place with the crowd, rejecting Jesus to the end. And in God's sovereign call of sinners, Scripture, Jesus says, is fulfilled. Scripture is fulfilled. Fulfilled. Remember that just a moment ago, Jesus rebuked the crowd for being like unfaithful Israel. He said, don't grumble, verse 43. If you remember your Old Testament, then you'll know that Israel's faithfulness, unfaithfulness to God eventually led to their exile. God kicked the people out of the land in order to symbolize their separation from God. But even then, the Old Testament itself looked forward to a day when God by His grace, would call and restore and rebuild His people. This restoration would not happen because Israel willed itself back into relationship with God. This restoration would happen because God would come and He would call and teach every one of His people. No longer will you teach your neighbor, know the Lord. You will all know me, God says, because I will call you and teach you. That promise, Jesus says, is now being fulfilled right now in your presence. Notice verse 45. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. This is the counterpoint to Jesus' rebuke from verse 43. The crowd must not grumble, for in grumbling, they miss the purpose of God that's being fulfilled right now. The passage Jesus quotes is Isaiah 54, verse 13. It's a passage that anticipates God's eternal covenant of peace. Where God's people are restored under his saving reign. Jesus' point is that this Old Testament promise is being fulfilled right now. And that fulfillment cannot be stopped. Everyone who hears from God will come to Christ and receive peace. The crowd's grumbling... The crowd's grumbling reveals the nature of their hearts. They do not know God. And they have not heard His call. Well, how do you know when someone has heard God's call? They come to Jesus. That's where Jesus goes in verse 46. Look there, verse 46. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. This is the clarification to verse 45. What does it mean to hear God's call? It means that you come to Jesus. For Jesus alone reveals God. This is the truth that has been running all through John's gospel since chapter 1. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. To hear God's effective call means that you come to Jesus Christ. For only Christ can make the Father known. Friends, this is actually a very important clarification that deserves just a moment of our attention. Verse 44 teaches that in salvation, the human will is not primary. God's will is primary. God's call is primary and effective. No one can come to God unless the Father draws him or her. And at the same time, how... How do we know that God has called someone by His sovereign grace? How do you know that God has called someone? Because that person comes to Jesus Christ. It is through the preaching of Christ that God's sovereign will is revealed in the lives of individuals. Do you see the important clarification that this, that this adds? No one can come to Christ unless the Father draws him. How do we know that the Father has drawn someone? Because they believe in Jesus Christ. It's a really important clarification. What we've been talking about for the last several minutes is the doctrine of election. And people often mistakenly think that the doctrine of election means we don't have to do evangelism. And we don't have to preach the gospel. Because God is just going to save whomever He wills, and our ministry doesn't matter. Friends, that is a massive, massive misconception of biblical truth. God will certainly save whomever He wills, for He is absolutely sovereign. But where is God's sovereign grace at work? In the preaching of the gospel. As we call people to faith in Jesus Christ. You have to keep verse 44 in context with verses 45 and 46. God's call is sovereign, rooted in grace, verse 44. And those who hear God's call, verse 45, come to Jesus, verse 46. For Jesus alone reveals the Father. You have to read verse 44 in context to say it a different way. The doctrine of election doesn't minimize our preaching and witnessing and ministry. The doctrine of election amplifies evangelism. It invigorates our witnessing. It elevates our ministry. We tell the lost about Jesus precisely because all whom the Father has given to the Son will come to him. And the Son will never cast them out. We preach Christ because no one can come unless the Father draws him. And God draws people in exactly this way, through his word to Jesus Christ. Amen. And that, that clarification takes us right into the, to the last reality. And we're going to close with this. From verses 47 and 48, the third reality in this text, there's the clear call to saving faith. The sovereign purpose of God the Father leads directly into the clear call to saving faith. Jesus has just affirmed the sovereign purpose of God in salvation and notice where he goes next. Verse 47 he calls people to faith. Listen again verse 47 Truly, truly I say to you whoever believes has eternal life I am the bread of life. Friends, this is a solemn statement from Jesus. Notice that introductory phrase, truly, truly. What Jesus says is not conjecture. He's not guessing. He's not giving you His opinion. This is rock-solid, heaven-sent truth from the lips of the Son of God Himself. And what is that rock-solid truth that Jesus wants you to hear? That whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. That whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. This is both a call to faith and a warning against unbelief. Remember who Jesus is talking to. He's talking to the grumbling crowd that's headed for judgment. They just want more bread. So does Jesus leave them in their grumbling? Does he just wave his hand and say, "Ah, God didn't call y'all, so forget about it. No, it's just the opposite. He calls them again to faith. He warns them that grumbling will lead to judgment, that it's from a heart of unbelief. And then he says, believe me. He calls them to trust him. Lay down your unbelief and trust me. We ought to catch the humility this creates in the heart of every Christian. Jesus issues this call to faith after he declares God's Grace in calling his people. God's call precedes our response. That order should remind every Christian that salvation does not belong to us, it didn't originate with us, and therefore we shouldn't boast about us. This is probably the best litmus test if someone tells you that they understand and rejoice in and celebrate the grace of God. Do they see their faith as a reason for boasting in themselves as though they figured out the truth? Or do they see their faith as a reason for praising God who alone calls sinners to Christ? God's call precedes our response. The fact that verse 47 comes after verse 44 should make each and every Christian humble before God. At the same time, verse 44 should also make us quick to call people to Christ. Just as before, we need to be crystal clear on this. Jesus is calling people to trust Him in verse 47. He urges people to believe, to bank their lives on His word. The sovereignty of God's grace never undercuts the responsibility that people have to trust in Jesus. Of course, someone will say to me at this point, but those things are incompatible, Pastor. Either God sovereignly calls people or people are responsible to believe, but you can't have it both ways. But that's the beauty of John chapter 6. These truths are compatible. Verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And verse 47, Whoever believes in me has eternal life. They're separated by two verses. Why? Because it's God's way of reminding us, Never separate your responsibility to believe from my sovereignty, and never separate my sovereignty from your responsibility to call people to faith. They always go together. Proclaim God's grace And call people to trust Jesus. Proclaim the depravity of the human condition. And therefore the the, the necessity of God's initiative. And in the very next breath. Urge people to repent of their sins and trust in Jesus. And that's what I would say to everyone who's here this morning. If you don't know Christ. Christ today, then God's Word, God's Word is calling you to turn from your sin and trust in Christ alone to save you. You cannot save yourself. Your good works are never good enough to bring you into the presence of God. As hard as that is to hear, the counterpoint is equally amazing. Your good works are never good enough to bring you into the presence of God and your sin, your sin is never heinous enough to stand against God's grace. Right now, Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father. He has paid sin's penalty at the cross. He has broken death shackles at the resurrection. And he reigns from heaven in the power of his indestructible life. Your sin against God, if you're not a Christian, your sin against God is real. And it will lead you to eternal judgment. But your sin is not sovereign. God is. And he saves whoever trusts in Jesus Christ. And so on the authority of his word. If you don't know Christ today. We call you to turn from your sin and believe. Our prayer for you is right there in verse 47. That you would believe in Jesus Christ. And receive eternal life in his name. Friends the only fitting conclusion to this passage. Is to praise God. That he didn't leave us. With those mud pies in the slum. With unstoppable grace. God came into the slum. He called us to himself. He brought us to himself. In Jesus Christ. And praise God. That in Christ. We have this unshakable hope. Having been drawn to Christ. By the grace of God. We will be kept by Christ. Secure. In that very same grace. Friends. It is good news today. That our salvation. Does not rest upon us. But upon God. And how sweet it is to have our assurance be not in the strength of our own believing. But in the faithfulness of the bread of life. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father we do thank you that you have given us your word. And that through your word Father you have declared to us what is true. We pray God for humble hearts to believe. We pray for faith to be strengthened. We pray for faith to be given by your grace, through the gospel, so that Christ would be magnified in the salvation of sinners. We pray, Father, that you would please take your word now and bear fruit in our hearts, leading both to the glory of your name, Father, and to the good of our souls. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.